I'd given up. I'd basically accepted the fact that I was going to die. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. To us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. The weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. Boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slim. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Paul de Gelder is a former army paratrooper and Navy clearance diver. A shark attack in Sydney Harbour saw Paul lose two limbs, but not his spirit. Paul is now a motivational speaker, passionate environmentalist, author, adventurer, and mentor to school kids. This is our conversation. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries. Tell me about your childhood. Um, Which part? Where'd you grow up? Little place called Mornington Peninsula down in Melbourne. Yeah, just down in Mornington, went to a Catholic school called St. McCartan's. Dad was a cop, Vic cop. Mum was a housewife. I had two younger brothers, um, two years and three years younger than me, and then a, a baby sister eight years younger than me. We were kind of, you know, six people on a policeman's wage. We weren't exactly living the lush life. Secondhand clothes, secondhand Christmas presents, all that sort of stuff. But we had everything. We had enough. Were you sporty, hardworking, or a young rapscallion? So dad on the side was a swimming coach. So we were always swimming. I think I had my first swimming lesson when I was two weeks old. It was the first time he put me in the in the water. And so I just always grew up swimming and I was quite good at that. Other types of fitness, not really. I could long distance run okay, but I was really bad at things like contact sports at football. And dad actually coached one of my football teams when I was younger as well for school and I was just really bad. I was really skinny, really short. I had big ears and freckles and I used to get picked on and called names and stuff. So I really had very little confidence growing up. When do you first start to look towards the military as a career option? Do you shape yourself for that when you're growing up? Oh man, that was 20. I didn't even think about it until I was maybe 22, 23. Okay, what were you focused on or doing before that? Uh, depends on what stage. The th- I guess the thing about my life is it's it's constantly in flux. It's always changing. The things that I want to do always change. I guess there's always a theme of some sort of fulfilling adventure behind it. So we moved away from Melbourne when I was 10 and moved up to Canberra. And it got a little better, I suppose. I felt like I had a better friends network people were nicer to me. I was, I was really quite afraid of moving to another city because of all the dramas that I'd had getting picked on. And my younger brothers got picked on as well. And so I had to look after them, even though I was getting picked on. Um, and so going to a whole new school in a whole new city was pretty terrifying, but it was a small school. There was only 130 people in the whole school. And I turned up and they were just really welcoming and they really made me feel at ease there. And I was there for two years and then went to St. Edmunds College, which is a large Catholic boys college. So I went from 130 kids at school to 12, 1300, and it was back to getting picked on and being terrible at sports. The only thing I really had was swimming. And it took me a while to find my feet. I, I had a bit of a growth spurt around 15 or 16, and 
I started doing a, a bit of kickboxing as well with a friend of mine. A, a lot of my friends had older brothers and so uh, we just followed in their footsteps. One of the local guys that we knew was a bit of a tough guy. He did kickboxing and some other not so <laughs> wonderful things. We started doing kickboxing and then one of the the school bullies, he was actually a, a year younger than me, but he was a bit, a bit of a bully and he called my mum a pretty nasty name. Uh, when she was working in the tuck shop and someone came and told me and I just thought, well, you can't do that. And I went down and knocked him out in the quad. And after that, no one really picked on me again, which was nice. And that, it wasn't good for my pride though, because then I thought, well, hey, I can fight. And so um, school started to make less of an impact on my life. Um, I didn't deal well with the discipline. Mum and dad were very discipline heavy at home. Dad was still a cop. Mum was a housewife. She was around a lot and she was very strict about how things had to go. And I rebelled against that too, uh, to the point where I just was never home. I wouldn't go home. I'd finish school. I'd go home, get changed and go down the basketball courts to hang out with the boys. So the weekends were out in Woden or in Civic. Um, we were doing really dumb stuff uh, like soda bulbs where you get the soda stream gas bulbs and you scratch the, the top off it and you stick it in a balloon and it fills and then you suck on the balloon and it, it's like it expands your brain or something and then contract it's just really really bad for you and it wasn't like we did this for a really long time and did it in depth or anything but we experimented with it and it just kind of got worse from there it was Canberra so there was weed everywhere so we started and really smoking. not much else to do and nothing else to do no none of the shops were open on Sundays my local neighbor Neighborhood Narrabunda on the weekend was like a freaking ghost town. Uh, there, it was barely cars on the road. And so it was really, really boring. So we just, we started smoking, we started drinking. My best friend's grandfather was Italian and he made grappa. So we started drinking this ridiculously strong spirit. And then we'd go into town on the weekends and at nighttime and we'd fight. And so it was just a, a really bad combination of everything that I found it very hard to get out of and it was setting quite a bad example for my siblings as well. And it got to the point where my, my, my dad just had enough and he called me at my friend's house one day and he said, come and get your stuff and fuck off. I'm sick of your shit. And um, I got it. I was pretty confused about what the hell I was going to do, but I understood and I didn't want to be there anyway, but I had nowhere else to go. So luckily I had some friends that took me in their, their parents, paid for them to live and study in Australia. They were from Indonesia. So I, I lived with them for about a year and a half and just didn't even try to improve my life choices. I just continued down this same self-destructive path. And I eventually got a job through a friend of mine working as a kitchen hand and I was just washing dishes. You know, it was at a place called um, La Grange, which was a bar slash restaurant in, during the day and then it was a restaurant at night and then it turned into a, a, one of the most popular clubs in Canberra. So obviously being a popular club, all the popular people came and in came the drugs and having, you know, being an employee there, you knew everyone. So they're giving you free cocaine and free speed and free ecstasy. And then there's drinking and smoking. So it was a really bad mixture of everything. And I kind of got wrapped up in that for a while. I wanted more. We were discussing earlier about reading and I was extremely well read because my dad always gifted me with books when he came back from his trips. And I just knew that there was this incredible world out there, but I didn't know how to escape Canberra. <laughs> that was, it felt like a pair of lead boots and I was just going down with it. And I'd moved out 
from living with the girls and I moved in with a couple of guys from the bar and maybe did that for a year. And I was coming up on my 21st birthday and I went to a party and I got jumped by 20 guys and got really badly beaten up and I just couldn't do it anymore. I realized that if I stayed there, I was going to be in jail or dead by the time I was 23. So I, I just had to make a really big decision to get the fuck out of there. And I packed everything up into a car that I had no license for and headed off to the bright lights of Bris Vegas. And my buddy, Matt, who'd left Canberra, uh, he, he was DJing in a strip club. So he got me a job in the strip club. Uh, and that was a pretty big step going from washing dishes to tending a bar in a strip club. All my friends were hot strippers and you meet all the, um, the local gangsters and tough guys and stuff like that. So that was pretty eye-opening and it was fun for a while, but uh, well, it still wasn't very healthy. You, know, you work from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. You never see the sun. You're always surrounded by smoking and drinking and partying. So I was still very skinny, very unhealthy. I was very pale. And I was working on music with the two American guys that I lived with as well. We were running nightclubs and community radio stations. So it was just party and party and working in nightclubs and working in strip clubs. And it was just very unhealthy. And we did cool stuff. We put out an, uh, an EP on CD. We opened up for Snoop Dogg. We did some cool stuff, but eventually not being a lot of money in white rappers in Brisbane in 1998. It's a bit of a niche genre. Yeah, yeah. The, not a lot of cash. We weren't exactly making it rain. And it all fell apart. The stresses got too much and it got a little violent, a little pushy. And I bailed with a, another couple of guys. And I was just back to working in a bar and it was so unfulfilling. And I didn't want to be the bar manager that I saw every day. He wasn't exactly the sort of person I saw myself being. And so I just thought I've got to make another drastic choice like I did when I left Canberra. And my two younger brothers were in the army. So I talked to them and asked them what they thought about me joining and they pissed themselves. Uh, they just like, there's no fucking way. There's no way you'll make it. So challenge accepted. Uh, yeah, exactly. They said, don't join infantry. You definitely won't make it in infantry. And so I joined infantry. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured if you're going to join the army, you join as a soldier. That's what the army is. You know, in my limited experiences, I didn't know about all the, the rest of the branches and how many they are and how important they are. I just thought you join the army, you join as a soldier. But you didn't want to just be a soldier. It's not too long until you go airborne. Well, I didn't, I didn't even know about airborne, really. I knew very little about the military, um, even when I joined. I didn't even know that both my grandparents on both sides had served for the military in some form or fashion. Um, my uncle was in Vietnam. So I went into it the way that I go into a lot of things, head first without thinking too much about it, then just dealing with it as situations arise. And it, it was really tough because I'd fought against discipline my whole life at school and at home. And it was the main thing that I hated so much. I just wanted to be able to make my own choices, but obviously I hadn't done too well making those choices. So it was probably a, a good thing that someone took control of me, uh, but I still didn't like it. I still didn't deal with it well, but I didn't have a choice. I didn't have anything to go back to. I didn't have any home. I didn't have any money. I'd flunked year 11 and 12. Uh, I tried to do an IT course after high school and learn about computers because that's what dad did. And I figured, well, you know, I'll just give it a crack. And I did a couple of months of that. And then a communications uh, phase came up and you had to talk in front of the class every day. And so I quit because I was terrified of public speaking. So I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. I'll just go do something else. And to be honest, I, I was struggling a lot in those classes as well. I couldn't stay awake. 
I thought it was just because I was bored or whatever, but it turns out that I had sleep apnea and I didn't find this out to many years later, but I just wasn't sleeping well. You know, my, my body was starved of oxygen. So anytime that I would stop and have to sit in a classroom and listen to people talking about structured queried language or DOS or whatever, I would just fall asleep. And so I couldn't keep up in anyway. It served me pretty well in the army though, because you just stop and sleep wherever you are. Uh, you, you know, you get a, a three minute break taking a, a four day pack march you just stop and sit down and take a three minute break and recharge uh, and that was enough for me but airborne came basically at the end of IETs where you're learning to do the job that you've chosen so I was at infantry school and they gave us the choice of um, the three battalions that you wanted to go to and I didn't really know much about them I knew four was commandos but they weren't really commandos at that point uh, that was just by name four RAR bracket commando not quite yeah what not, they are now yeah, yeah no not even close um, I knew six was in Brisbane so I put down six as well because then I could go back to Brizzy to my friends um, and then I put three three or one no it wasn't one or two because i didn't want to go to townsville i think it was three and then they just said all right who wants to jump out of a plane and i just thought fuck yeah i do uh, <laughs> um, why not yeah hell yeah jump out of a plane we get paid to do that and so i put my hand up and that was sealed they sent me off to sydney to third battalion royal australian regiment and i'll always be grateful to the army for the things that it provided to me for the for the new lease on life for the life skills for the the chance to serve my country and the sense of pride that that gave me. When I got to my battalion and did my parachute course and got my maroon beret and that, that parachute patch on my wings and I was wearing my cans, I just felt uh, like I had purpose, which is something that I never really had before. I was just kind of drifting from whatever I could latch onto. And now I had this amazing job and i'll always remember walking out of the the psychologist's office before I'd, I'd actually got in and i passed the psych test and passed the um, aptitude testing and the psych said to me as i walked out good luck with your career and that made such an impact on me because i'd never had a career a real career and i'd never really perceived that i could have one because I hadn't, didn't have the education for it. So that really made quite an impact on me and something that I'll always remember. When 9-11 happened, did that give this new career, what is a novel idea to you, a stronger sense of purpose? Did you feel like I can really do something meaningful now? I guess like everyone else, I know exactly where I was when it happened. I was actually on the base at Holsworthy, laying in my bed, watching TV and the, the screen cut out and went to, it was like being in America where you watch movies and they say, this broadcast is being interrupted, very, very special announcement. And that's exactly what happened. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? This doesn't happen. And then the plane crashed in the building. I was like, holy shit. And I went out onto the balcony and knocked on some of the doors around me to my mates and told them. Then I went back, turned the TV off and went to sleep and a couple of minutes later I hear screaming and yelling and I go outside and they're like another plane crashed into the building I was like holy shit and I turned the tv on and my instantaneous thought was we're going to war and it wasn't really a rush it wasn't like uh, it wasn't what you were saying no it wasn't like I'm going to get to do my job for real it was more like this is serious this is really really serious and I've only been in the army for a little time. It made me think about all these guys from uh, the Australian Imperial Forces and World War II who got conscripted and had so little training, 
before they got shipped off to Egypt and to France and the, the horrific things that they saw. That, that flashed through my mind. I was just thinking, shit, I've been prepared so minor for what might come. Um, the funny thing was that before we even went off to do that, we went to East Timor. So that was a, a really eye-opening experience. So technically classed as a war zone, I ended up getting the, the infantry combat badge for it for 90 days continuous service in a warlike environment. But it was pretty bloody far from a war zone, if you ask me. We were patrolling the borders. We were in Balibo. We didn't spend any time in Dili. We did like sniper pre-selection courses, specialist communication courses. Uh, we kidnapped one soldier who crossed the border to tax the locals. It was pretty low risk. No serious contacts? Or- no, nothing like that. This was 2002, so it was pretty quiet by then. But at the same time, it, it once again gave me a really great source of pride and value um, because if we weren't there, then the Indonesians and the ninjas were coming over and killing these people. So... A lot of the people there were very grateful that we were there because they could just go on with their lives and be happy. And some of them were just sick of it. Like, I guess they thought it was an um, occupying force. But for me, it was more about the reward that I got from having the opportunity to go to a third world country like that. Having never, I'd never been overseas before. This was the first time I'd experienced anything like this. And these people were so poor. And they'd collect water from a tap in the middle of the street in Balibo. And they'd, we'd go up and set our rubbish on fire with diesel. And as soon as we turned our backs to drive away in the mog, the people would literally run out of the jungle with our old army socks on their hands and homemade rakes raking through our trash on fire to see what they could salvage. And it just made me appreciate everything that we have here at home. So we'd be, if, if we were on an FOB, a forward operating base, we were allowed to have one one minute shower a day or two 30 second showers a day. So you'd go down, I, I was a machine gunner. So I go down in my towel with my machine gun and hang my machine gun on the back of the shower door, which was totally abstract in my mind. Um, yeah. I hang a towel. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we'd go out running and we'd have to carry, we'd go running with our pistols or we'd go running with our styres, uh, the two of us, uh, me, me and my buddy Poppy. And it was just this crazy sort of abstract world that we were existing in where these people had nothing and yet they were happier than a lot of people that I would that I knew in Australia. Why do you think that is? I guess it's a little bit of if you don't know what you don't have, you don't miss it. But at the same time, they, ha- they had different values. Um, they were very religious, very Catholic in East Timor, actually. And they valued family and they valued their children and their grandparents. And when we'd go further out into the jungle, they'd value the tribal unity. Uh, so I-, I did a two-week course in the language they speak there called Tedum. And obviously a two-week course means that I'm the platoon translator. So <laughs> uh, I had to con- keep studying the language while I was there and I- we'd go out hiking into areas where they'd barely seen white people ever and i'd have to communicate with the village chiefs and barter um trade for dinner like we'd buy a chicken off them and they'd cook it for us and then they'd trick me into eating the chicken's head saying it was a delicacy it wasn't at all it was gross uh (laughs) but you still did it yeah still did it Uh, the whole village was outside the chief's window looking in. I mean, window loosely, like a hole in a thatched. Look at the dumb white boy eating the chicken head. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty funny though. We had, I had a great time. Um, it was challenging. 
very much so being away from family and friends and the jungle out there is is quite harsh and the maps aren't fantastic and i got lost on my sniper pre-selection course with my buddy we did one of those big desert circles where we didn't know we were walking in a circle but we did uh, yeah i learned a lot it, it was a great training ground for operations Back when you were getting your wings initially, was jumping out of the plane as fun as you thought it was going to be? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I loved it. A lot of people hated it um, because the, the someone once told me the, the parachutes aren't designed to slow you down. They're more designed to help you fall upright. Uh, which is it's reassuring. Pr- it's pretty true. Um, I hear the the new parachutes are a lot better, but we were jumping off the old T10 D-Bs, which they make you. They're designed to get you from the plane to the ground as fast as possible without killing you. And then you've got the MC ones, which you can somewhat point manipulate. The, yeah, you can yeah. somewhat manipulate. But the first time you jump out of the plane and you look up, it's just the normal parachute full of holes. So you, it looks like someone's attacked the canopy with a, a lighter. Uh, so that's a little bit intimidating as well. I never got injured. I never had a single injury. Uh, and I think the secret was to that, that I just closed my eyes. I assume the position they teach you. And then when you get close to the ground, you just close your eyes and relax. A lot of people, we did jumps in Townsville where massive amounts of people were injured. Broken backs, broken knees, broken ankles. People were upside down in trees. People landed on house roofs. Uh, so uh, they didn't like it. I'd have people in my plane throwing up into their helmet. Uh, like disgusting shit like that. But uh, I loved it. I never got hurt. So it was just a bunch of fun for me except for the tactical flying, which sucks. That really does make you feel sick. When do you finally start gearing up for a Middle East deployment? Um, shit, I don't remember what year it was. Uh, maybe 2000 and I think it was the end of 2003 or the start of 2004. So for Iraq? For Iraq, yeah. Um, and I was on an exercise in Belangelo State Forest uh, with my company and we were, we were practicing the beginnings of these silent attacks. Uh, we're just trying something new and we're hunting each other each section was hunting each other through the forest which was really cool and my warrant officer came over to me with a, a mobile phone and said hey paul the boss wants to speak to you which was really weird so i just said yeah what's up and he said hey uh my nickname was dutchy and he said hey dutchy do you want to go to the sand pit and i just said fuck yeah i do and so he's like all right pack your bags you're coming back to base you're going on a training course so we went back and we got all that, me and uh, it was like a five-man section. We were going to bolster a security detachment in Iraq and um, got all our issues, did a bunch of training. And then four days before we left, they canceled the trip. And so I was pretty shattered about that. You know, they were sending the chaplain, they were sending all these pogues and then they didn't send us. And um, they said that the chief of Navy didn't want to send anyone for less than three months and we were only going for two and a half apparently. So they canceled our trip. I got the shits, to be honest. I really got pissed off. I wanted to, after East Timor, it was like training for a grand final and finally getting to play, and I wanted that again. And so when they pulled that rug out from under my feet, I got pissed off, and I just thought, oh, I, I don't want to be pissed off. I don't want to be cranky. I want to love my job, but my motivation is slipping here because it's just the same exercises every year. We go out to Townsville. We go up to Long Range. We go out to Area E in Holsworth. It's just the same shit over again. I got sick of it. Digging a hole. And- Digging a hole. Yeah, yeah. It's, everything's done in a bloody hole. You know, you're spending two, three days digging fighting pits you know stage three fighting pits with overhead protection and then you got to fill it in again then you're doing five 10k fighting withdrawals in full mop gear in the middle of the night and it was just i could see what was coming and i just didn't want to do it anymore 
and we were about to go on an exercise to New Caledonia and we we're going to be flying in choppers and stuff. So they sent us down to Nowra to do Hewitt training, uh, helicopter underwater escape training. And on that course, one of the safety divers to make sure the army guys didn't drown, which was always a bit of a concern, uh, they had the clearance divers. And I'd heard about them. I didn't really know that much about them. I knew they were pretty, pretty special, pretty hardcore dudes. And then once again, I got to talking to one of them about it. And it, it sparked my interest. And then when we were in New Caledonia, we were on one of the French patrol boats. And one afternoon I went out onto the deck and there was these dudes walking around black t-shirts and short tan shorts. They didn't dress like everyone else. And they were lining all this diving gear out on the deck. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, oh, these are the, the French frogmen. You know, they're going to swim in tonight under cover of darkness and do reconnaissance on the beach and stuff. I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's, that's like the real frogmen. And so that got me going again. And then I got back to Sydney to Holdsworthy and one of my friends um, who never really got excited about anything, was super excited about something. And he's like, I'm going to go and train. I'm going to go and be a clearance diver. And I thought, oh, man, that sounds amazing. I'm, I'll come and do it with you too. We'll do training and stuff. And then he ended up pulling out because I was like, why, why do you want to do it? You were so excited. And he said, well, I found out that if you don't pass, you just have to be part of the general Navy and they make you paint rocks. And I just thought, that can't be right. <laughs> can't Probably be. something in between. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I think actually we just would have been sent back to the army unit, to be honest. You but can, I, then you can paint land rocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, on, on roppies they call it. But I was sold already. There was no way I was pulling out now, and so um, I started training. I put in a um, a request to go on the training course, which was ships divers, learning to scuba dive, which is great because I'd never scuba dived in my life, and how to search for bombs because obviously those two things go hand in hand. A pretty steep learning curve, uh, but I passed. And then I, I just went back to the base, back to Holsworthy. And I was waiting. I had to put in a, a transfer of service before I could go on to the next selection course because if I passed that selection course, then I'd go on to the basic clearance divers course. And then, then you're in the, you have to be in the Navy to do that. So I went back to Holsworthy and it was just, um, it was a lot of waiting and wait. And I, I couldn't work out why it wasn't going through. And I found out that my service transfer was sitting in BHQ for five weeks because they had a protocol where it had to sit there for five weeks or four weeks or something like that. It was like a cooling down period. And I went in and I, I knew pretty much everyone around the base. Um, I like to think I'm a pretty friendly guy. And I knew the guy who was working the desk. Oh, why, why has it, I'm knife handing him at this point. Why has it been sitting here for five fucking weeks? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's a cooling down period, but you know, you could have signed this piece of paper to fast track it. And I'm just like, my, my hand's in my head. And I'm just thinking, why the fuck didn't anyone tell me this? So I put it in and then it, it's still getting delayed and I can't work, work out why. And I, I asked my boss if I can go down to um, the RI store where we sell the packs and all that stuff um, so I can get some training because I hear this selection process is crazy, but he won't let me go. And I'm, I'm going out bush all the time doing these exercises. I can't keep any weight on. I'm not getting good nutrition and I need to be able to run and do push-ups and chin-ups and chin all that stuff to get past this course, but he won't let me go down and train. And I pulled him up. This is a, the OC officer commanding my, of my company, mind you. I used to be scared of this guy. <laughs> any, anyone who was an officer above lieutenant, I basically was afraid of. But by this point, I was, didn't care. And I pulled him up and I said, why, why, why won't you let me go? And he said, look, 
I'll make a deal with you. If you stick around for the cross country, the athletics carnival and the swimming carnival and you help us win the trophies, I'll let you go. So just wanted to make the most of you. Yeah. So I was one of the best swimmers in the battalion. I was a good runner as well. I was good at most stuff. I wasn't amazing, but I was good. I could hold my own. And so I, I stuck around, made the deal. We won all the trophies, not through me or anything like that, but I helped. And then he let me go down and I started training. And the start of 2005, uh, I went on to the selection course, CDAT. Well, selection courses for special forces like the SAS, they're infamous and the rigors they go through are quite well known. Tell me about your experience with the clearance diver selection course. Um, I think we started with about 32 people on that first day. We were down to maybe 17 by the end of that day. It's a good attrition rate. Yeah. Um, we lost about 70% of the course, most of them on that first day. It starts with you get a few issues, you get a few briefs, and then in the afternoon you, you do your PT test. So you do your push-ups, I think it's uh, 50 or 60 push-ups, 10 or 15 chin-ups, uh, a 2.4 and a 500-meter fin. So you're in your, your overalls and you've got a pair of fins on on the surface on your back, kicking your legs. You would have found all that pretty, all right? Yeah, that was pretty easy. Um, the finning wasn't the easiest. Uh, I wasn't that great. I, I don't have super strong legs. I've got running legs, uh, but I passed that, no worries. And then we went and did um, the gate to gate, the infamous gate to gate, and it takes hours. And it's not it's not even that long. Like the loop is from the dive school up the hill, around down near Chowder Bay, and then back up and back to the dive school. It was really not that far. It took about three hours. And we're doing fireman's carries, hill sprints, Indian file, stair sprints, push-ups, and all the while you're getting goaded by the, the DS, by the, the staff. You get on the bus. It's nice. There's a nice warm coffee waiting for you. You don't need to go through this shit. Just yelling at you and beasting you the whole time. Just really working on your morale. And so that took about three hours and we get back down to the dive school. It's dark by this point and everyone's shattered. And they go, all right, you got two minutes to stretch up and we're doing it again. And you're wearing all these fluoro vests and the people just start handing them in straight away. Um, and then after that, it just gets worse and worse. You're doing a fin in the middle of the night from Mossman to Manly and then back. Uh, that takes five or six hours. Um, next morning is a half marathon to Manly. Five-hour PT sessions uh, on, on the beach. Uh, you're doing PT up and down the soft sands at Palm Beach. Stretcher carries pack marches, breath hold, first aid stands, mind games, pulling boats through the harbour by a rope, uh, just on and on and on and on, on, canoeing for hours and hours and then carrying the canoes up hills. It was pretty bloody hard. It was one of the harder things I've done in my life, but it, easier on me than I guess some of the people because one thing was I, they were going to have to kill me because I wasn't going back to the army. And the other one was I didn't have any blisters on my feet like most everyone else because I was used to pack marching, where all the other guys were either Navy and there was one Air Force guy. So we'd finish the day after a massive pack march or something. They'd all take their boots off and start taping up their toes. One of the guys had to tape his full ball sack together. Uh, <laughs> I, I took my boots off and went to sleep. So I was fortunate in that. Was there any kind of pattern between the guys dropping out and those that would reach the finish line? None whatsoever, really. It was. It's all about heart. It really is. Um, it's hard. It's about determination. You don't have to be the fastest, the biggest, the strongest, any of that. You just have to keep going. You just have to not quit. You've got to you know, keep a, a good moderate sense of joy about you as well. 
Um, you can't go through it bitching and whinging. You won't pass. You can't go through it even just being quiet, being the gray man that much. Like you have to help each other out because they look for all this stuff. There was many instances when I was working down at the dive school after the shark attack where we'd have people going, oh, we've got this super elite Iron Man or ultra marathon runner coming down to, he's a triathlete, he's going to kill this. And they'd fail. Biggest, scariest dudes. We'd take them for a, a dive during the day, no problems. We'd give them a, a dip test, as we'd call it, um, at nighttime, as soon as it got dark and you couldn't see anything underwater. They would polaris to the surface and say, nope, no, not doing it. This isn't for me. So, but you might get the smallest, squirreliest dude who's like, he doesn't look like anything. And yet he will do everything without, without a blink. He will always be there to help out. He might not be up the front, but he will always be there. And, and they will pass with flying colors. Well, the clearance divers don't accept quitters. They don't accept mediocrity, but you're neither of those. You make it through. Can you describe some of the roles and tasks of clearance divers, both home and abroad? Yeah, the um, the main four roles, and the, the dynamic of the clearance diving branch has changed since I left. They've given different elements, different names and what have you. But the main crux of being a clearance diver is four roles. You've got um, maritime tactical operations, which is diving on pure oxygen rebreathers, surveying beachheads, doing reconnaissance, uh, doing attack swims, then you've got mine countermeasures, so using minimal magnetic signature diving equipment, rebreathers, to look for and dispose of seaborne mines and explosives. What we used to call underwater battle damage repair, I believe it's called something else now, but that's fundamentally diving on the modern day diving helmets and using almost any handheld tool you can think of underwater. And then land-based EOD, so think hurt locker. Uh, and then if you want to go further than that, then you can go and join the tactical assault group and work with the commandos as a waterborne operator uh, doing counterterrorism work, you know, gas masks all in black, kicking down doors, you know, shooting the terrorists, fast roping out of helicopters onto moving ships and killing pirates, all that sort of stuff. So th that's the, the crux of what a clearance diver can and does do. So the, three months after the shark attack, two of the guys that saved my life were in Afghanistan doing EOD. Before we get to the shark attack, are there any particular highlights from deployments or ops you want to share? Um, you know what, man? I, I just really, I really enjoyed my life as a clearance diver. Um, all aspects of it. When we were at home, when we were on exercise, working with other nations, it was like a life that I never thought I'd be able to achieve. And I fought really, really hard, obviously, to get to that point. I didn't think that it was going to be my whole life, but I didn't know where else. I didn't know how the hell I could get better than that. Um, you know, I was traveling the world with my mates, shooting guns, blowing stuff up, jumping out of planes and helicopters. I rode a big black Italian sports bike and I lived at Bondi Beach. The dream. Literally living the dream. And so everything about it was great. The people you work with, the way you get treated, uh, very different to the army where you're very mollycoddled. Whereas as the clearance diving branch, we'd stop off in Malaysia to go to an island for an exercise for a month and we'd have three days off and they'd give us some rental cars and say, see you in three days. So it was just that sense of responsibility and trust in us as, as clearance divers and good and professional at what we do that we could be trusted to be responsible in every aspect. Well, you've earned this elite status, so you're representing our country at such a high level. It's good they in turn are giving you that freedom and recognition. It was just very different to the infantry where they lock you down on base and say, no, you're not allowed to go anywhere. 
your dad's a cop. Your younger brothers, you said, were in the military. Mm. By the time you make the clearance divers, what do they make of your career? I think they were still trying to get over the fact that I'd got into the military at that stage. And by that stage, my sister had joined as well. So we were all army at one point. And those two guys that I just told you about that were in Afghanistan, three of which they were with my sister. Uh, so she was going out on, they, they often talk about how women aren't allowed in combat roles and how women don't go outside the wire and all that stuff. Yeah, it's rubbish. She was going out on five week fighting patrols with the um, infantry sections. Uh, so she's badass. I'll have to get your sister on the podcast. Yeah, she's awesome. She works here in Sydney actually. Uh, yeah, she's, she's incredible. In February 2009, you're on a domestic counterterrorism exercise in Sydney Harbour, and that's when your life changes forever. In every single way. Ridiculously. Um, man, I was terrified of sharks. I was so scared of sharks all the time. Yet you joined Clarence <laughs> Divers. <laughs> like, I, like I said, man, I, I jumped in headfirst without thinking too much about things. Um, <laughs> that's, that's how I, I got so far in life, really. Don't think too much. Just... If you want to do something, just fucking do it. You know, you have you have a job to do. So you put it to the back of your mind and, and you get on with the job. And the funny thing is that that morning when I was doing, just before I got attacked by the shark, I was finning on the surface in Sydney Harbour down at Woolloomooloo and I was on my back. And when we, when we get taught to fin, we're supposed to do it with our arms crossed over our chest. But I don't like doing that. I like having my hands by my side and just sort of waving my hands in the water alongside me. And so I'm doing that. And I'm thinking, if I got attacked by a shark right now, where would it be better for me to have my hands? Should I have them down by my side? If I have them by my side, then the shark could probably pin my arm to my side and I wouldn't be able to fight it off. But it might bulk out my vital organs and it might not damage any of those. If I had them across my chest, then it could still pin my arm to me and I couldn't, it could pin both my arms to me. And then I'm just thinking about it. So if they're on my side, it can bite one arm. I can still punch it yeah, in the face. Yeah, exactly. So all this is running through my head um, as it often does. And then I look over my left shoulder to make sure I'm still going in the right direction. And a fucking shark bites me. Context for this, Sydney Harbour, when was the last time someone was bitten by a shark? 60 years before that. So you ha would have a right to feel reasonably safe in what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, where we were is alongside the Navy base. And this is where we work on the ships all the time. So people have been working there for decades. Everyone knows there's bull sharks in Sydney Harbour, but they've never bothered anyone. We've, you can't even see through the water really. So no one's really even seen them. We leave them alone. They leave us alone. And then one decides to eat me for breakfast. Um, and I didn't even know what it was, to be honest. Like I, I, it didn't hurt when it grabbed me. I just, it felt like someone had hit me in the leg with a bat. I thought maybe the guys in the boat got a little bit too close. I wasn't sure. And then I turned around and saw it and you can't, your brain takes a couple of seconds to work out what's going on because it's a scenario that you've never seen before. And so I looked at it and I, it took me a second for it to click in what was going on. And then I just thought, fuck, what am I going to do? And so I thought, all right, go for the eyeball, but I couldn't move my hand. So where is it bitten you on the leg? So I, I, I was on my back on the surface with my right arm by my side. It's come up from underneath me and grabbed me by the hamstring and the hand. Um, so like I was thinking, it maybe bulked out my thigh a little bit, um, which actually would have been amazing because it stopped um, the shark getting such a grip on my leg that 
it missed my femoral artery by a couple of millimeters. So having that wrist and arm there may have just saved my life. I, I don't know, but it, it sounds feasible. And so I reach over with my left hand. I can't reach the eye. I try and push it off by the nose, but that just, I can feel the teeth going deeper into the back of my leg. So I stop that and I try to punch it in the head, but then it starts to shake me. So I don't even really get a good shot off um, because the pain is just so ridiculously intense that uh, I, all the fight goes out of me. So you remember the pain? Uh, yeah. And they say you can't remember pain and I call bullshit on that. I feel it every time I get a phantom pain in my leg. It feels like I'm being hit with a thousand volts from my hip down into my foot that's not even there. And that it's almost a replication of that pain, that, the, the shark tearing the meat out of my leg. And it lasted about eight seconds, eight to ten seconds. I've watched the video. It happens so fast. Yeah. It, it didn't feel like it, though. I'd given up. I basically accepted the fact that I was going to die because when something that big is attached to you and you have no purchase, you can't grab onto anything, you're just you're in the water like you can grab nothing but the shark but the shark is so slippery you can't even grab that and i've only got one hand so i couldn't do anything i'm a total rag doll in this thing's mouth and so i just resigned myself to the fact that i wasn't going home i figured another shark had come along or this one had finished me off and it ripped out my hamstring and took my hand off in the same bite and I popped to the surface because my wetsuit made me positively buoyant uh, and i remember seeing i remember getting the water splashed in my face and seeing the tail go past my face. And then I saw my safety boat and I thought, I've got to get out of here. So I take my arm out to take a stroke, but I can see my hands gone. And so my medical training instantly kicks in and I think I've got to keep that wound above my heart or I'm going to bleed out. So I start swimming back to the boat with my arm out of the water, but I can't feel my right leg at all. And I, I didn't even think I was going to make it. To be honest, I, I thought this shark's going to come back. I've got obviously bleeding into the water right now. So all the sharks in the area are going to get attracted to here. Something's going to kill me. I'm just swimming back to the boat anyway, because what else am I going to do? And the guys in the safety boat said I was swimming through a, a massive pool of my own blood. And they, it was so thick they could actually taste it when they got closer. Luckily for me, they got to me first and pulled me out of the water and started first aid. It kept me alive. Tell me about your journey and recovery afterwards. Because you still had the leg attached. Yeah, I had the leg for a week um, after I woke up, after about two days. And I, I so badly wanted to keep it because I figured, you know what, my hand's gone, okay. I'm, I'm a very rational person. Hand's gone, but if I can keep my leg, then maybe I can stay in my job and this life because I, I didn't have anything else. That was terrifying to me. Losing my career, it was all, all I had. My whole job was based on the fact that physically I could do anything that I, was asked of me. And all of a sudden, if I lose my leg, I'm not going to be able to do any of that. So what is my life going to be like? I'm not going to be able to have a job. I'm, not, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. I'm going to have people pitying me and crutch. It was an absolutely terrifying prospect. I was so, so very scared for the future. The drugs helped numb that somewhat though. Uh, and when the, the doctor came in and told me that, um, well, he didn't tell me. He he explained it all to me and broke it all down. And I made the choice to have my leg taken off, which he, I think he knew I would. But the pain after the leg surgery was probably the worst part. Um, the pain management team couldn't get it under control. All the drugs that they gave me weren't working. They couldn't give me any more. And I was laying in my hospital bed, bawling my eyes out in agony for 20 hours, just wishing that I would die. Um, th this was the worst 
thing, the worst, lowest point that I'd ever had. And all I wanted to do was die. I, I wished and prayed that the shark had actually killed me because I didn't know if it was going to stop. Right? After the, the first hour and then the second hour and then the third or like the, to the 17th, 18th, 19th hour and the pain wasn't going away, I begged my mum to go and find a gun so I could kill myself. I just wanted it to stop. But eventually it did. Finally, it went away somewhat. And then I had some really big decisions to make because, like I said, I, I might not have a career. And I, I realized that the only thing that I could control was the choices that I made at that point because I certainly couldn't go to the toilet by myself. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. The only thing I could control was the choices that I made. And so I chose. I chose, okay, what do I want? Do I want a good life or do I want a shit life? I want a good life, just like everyone else. Okay, well, you want a good life. It's like that, that choose your own adventure book you read as a kid. Okay, you start choosing your path. And that's basically what I did and what I've done ever since then. It's the only true power that we have in life. We get to choose whether we're going to be a victim to our circumstances. Our circumstances are going to happen to us no matter what, but we choose how we react to it. We choose what we're going to do next. We choose whether we're going to be happy, whether we're going to be sad, whether we're going to get wrapped around the axles about the bullshit, whether we're going to sit at home and do nothing, or we're going to go out and go and live life. You know, That's our choice. And people fall victim to their emotions way too much. They feel like their emotions control them, and it's bullshit. Uh, and I know there's circumstances where there's chemical imbalances and clinical depression and stuff like that. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people that allow themselves to be beaten down. They, you know, that's your choice. Don't be a, a little bitching whinger. Just fucking make a proper choice about life, what you want, and then follow that path. So that's what I did. I made a choice and I followed that path. Get up earlier. You know, there weren't big big choices. It was like, what do I need to do? I need to eat better. I need to drink more fluids. I need to read more to keep my mind active while I'm in hospital. I'm not doing anything instead of thinking too much. I didn't want to talk to a counselor because I already knew how I was feeling. I didn't need someone to tell me that I could live a good life because I knew that. I just needed to find a way to do that. So instead of talking to a counselor, I used the internet and I looked up prosthetics, I looked up Paralympic athletes, I googled the cheat one-handed way to do things and cheat one-legged way to do things. And like we all know, knowledge dispels fear and knowledge is power. So the more knowledge I gathered, the less I feared and the, the more control I felt I had over my life. So I just kept doing that over and repeat, 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 repeat until those tiny little small goals and challenges of eat more food, eat better food, get off the drugs became big goals like why not try and get back to work? Well, I think your life since the shark attack has been a series of smaller decisions that one at a time they build and have this amazing cumulative effect from the little things like you are lacking two limbs, yet you're an incredibly fit bloke, incredibly motivated. You had two main fears when you were younger of sharks and public speaking, and you survived a shark attack, and now you are a motivational speaker. That journey is amazing and the determination you have inside you is an inspiration. And I can see why you have the career as a motivational speaker because you just got up and kept going. So you went back to the Navy and taught for a bit and then decided that wasn't for you and you move on. What is some of the work you're doing today? It's funny because it's better than I could ever have imagined my life. It's crazy. You're exactly right. The cumulative effect of all the little things, the little choices and the little goals and challenges turned into something really amazing. 
I left the Navy mid-2012 because it was just killing me, basically. I couldn't keep up. 70, 80-hour weeks sometimes, going to bed at 2 a.m., up at 6 a.m. again, all the while trying to maintain my fitness, keep up with the boys, and it was just too hard. Um, my leg was killing me, um, and so I decided to make that leap outside the military, which was absolutely terrifying. But I'd done a little bit of public speaking, and it just grew and grew, and I got better and better, and I took the advice from people that I knew that had done a bit as well and how I could improve it and took the criticism, which I was never really good at before, but I knew that if I didn't grow in this new career, then I'd have nothing else to fall back on. So, and it, to be honest, I don't think it, anything that I did was anything that special. I don't feel like I'm the super motivated person. I'm not, people call me inspirational all the time. I don't feel inspirational. I just feel like I'm just living my life. I think you've got that determination and drive and you have just brought this out from an internal source and just done it. And we all have the same ability to do that. Like you said, you just got to make the choice to actually get up and do it. Yeah. I guess that's why the, the career has done so well as uh, also with the speaking. Um, I, I recently moved to LA because I was living here in Bondi and I was doing a lot of speaking, heaps and heaps and heaps and a little bit of television as well. And I really enjoy it. Um, even on my worst day where sometimes, you know, I'll, I won't feel like speaking at all. I don't want to tell this story again. You can imagine how many times I've told this. Oh my God. I it felt gets a little so, bad for inviting you on the show. <laughs> it gets so, I'm so sick of telling it. Um, and sorry, and it's no, it's not because it, it's, I'm sick of saying the same thing over and over again. So I try and find ways to tell it in different ways, but there's only so many ways you can tell it. It's not like I, I can change it to a fire breathing dragon or anything, but at the same time, I'm appreciative of the fact that I get the opportunity to do that. And I know how big a difference that this story and the lessons I learned throughout it make a difference in people's lives, because that's the beauty of social media. You're very contactable. So people write to me after every single job I do, whether it's high school kids, whether it's big corporate jobs, people will write to me and tell me how much it has affected their life and how much it's motivated them. So sometimes even on my worst mornings where I'm just like, I don't feel like speaking, I'm really cranky, maybe I didn't sleep that well. By the end of the presentation, I'm actually on a high and I feel good because I've got up there and the presentation is the whole spectrum of human emotion. I've had Women cry, I've had men cry, we laugh ourselves stupid. I've had 53 people pass out from looking at the surgery photos, 50, 51 men. So I, we have a good time. And by the end of it, you know, I'm appreciative of that. And so that grew into me being comfortable in front of a crowd to being comfortable in front of a camera through doing, you know, 60 Minutes, an Australian story. And whenever a shark attack happens for the first couple of years, I was getting calls from the news. And so that bled into an interview with Discovery Channel and they liked that so much they flew me out to LA for a talk show and they liked that so much they gave me a co-hosting job to the point where um, now I have a, a two-year contract with them for three Shark Week shows a year. They gave me a, a two-year working visa. I've got development money for my own show. I'm waiting on a green light for my own series at the moment and I just signed with one of the biggest speaking bureaus in the world. So life is pretty good. I'm living in Marina Del Rey. I flew my dog over there. I'm dating my gym crush and I'm kind of living that dream all over again just because I made the choices that that's what I wanted to do I put the goals and the challenges in place and I just kept doing them piece by piece it heaps of sacrifices though I've been living in Airbnbs and hotels for two years 
I haven't had, I've been living out of a bag for two years, bouncing between Australia and America and all over Australia, all over America, trying to get more speaking work, trying to meet the production companies, get management and all that sort of stuff. But it worked. And, you know, the fruition is all coming into it now. And I just, I can't wait to see what's next. You know, I'm, I'm taking Ronda Rousey to dive with Great White Sharks in two months. So I'm getting... It doesn't sound like fun, but I'm about to get shipwrecked for two days in the middle of the, the Bahamas to see what, just to see what happens, <laughs> to see how I survive with another guy. But it's all part of the adventure. And that's all I ever really wanted in my life was to look back on it and, and not have any regrets because that was the biggest thing I found. When I was underwater, about to die, the first thing I thought of was, am I ready to go? Do I have any regrets? And I didn't. And so I thought, okay, well, that's good. I'm ready to go but then I didn't die. So now I just have to make sure that I've been given this second chance. The next time that I'm faced with that situation where I'm going to die, I want to feel that way again. I have no regrets. I've done everything I can. I've helped lots of people. I've given without any expectation of receiving. I've made a difference in the world and I, I've made people's lives easier. So that's really all I want to do. You mentioned Shark Week and I think that's amazing that you're over there working with sharks shark conservationist despite being a shark attack survivor i know you'll get that comment all the time but it's brilliant now that you live in the states a lot i wanted to ask this question as a point of comparison as a veteran because in australia we make such a big song and dance about how much we love our diggers what anzac means to us and every anzac day and remembrance day media blitz on this big hoorah but you've lived in the states and where their patriotism towards their veterans is also apparently off the scale how does u.s treatment in regard to their former servicemen, servicewomen compared to Australia? Um, it's it's very different. And it's I'm not trying to criticise Australia here at all because it's, it's a different culture as well. There's so many military in America, so many troops that everyone knows someone who served. You know, you, you might be your cousin, your uncle, your dad, your next door neighbour, Some everyone knows someone who served in the military. So they have that connection with it. Whereas in Australia, our military is so small that not everyone has that connection with it. People that do are, are very respectful, very patriotic towards service people. But I could name on one hand how many times I've been thanked for my service here. And it's not to say that I, anyone, any of us expect that at all, but it's pretty, it's sweet sometimes, especially if it doesn't happen very often. I've been thanked more times in the airport leaving LAX than I have in my whole life in Australia. People secretly pay for my lunches. You know, I've had sheriffs pay for my lunches secretly. Like two weeks ago, a couple at a cafe paid for mine and my girlfriend's lunch secretly. And I don't expect that and I, I would rather pay for it myself, but it's very, very sweet that people do that. They have, I guess, a much better connection to their service personnel than we do. Um, and it's all the time. It's not like just Anzac Day. You know, everyone loves Anzac Day. I'm not sure if they just love it because they get a day off and they can go and all get drunk. Play two up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Everyone loves a bit of two up. But over there, it's like, it's all the time. It's every day. They're very, very grateful and respectful. Well, Paul, it's interesting to look back at your life and you've made decision after decision, whether it's, you know, leaving Canberra or Brisbane or recovery post-injury or in between, I don't want to just go back and out to the desert and dig a hole. I want a new challenge. It's this aversion to mediocrity. You are avoiding, you know, what's the boring choice? What's the shit choice? You are the antithesis of mediocrity. You are continuing to push and you have this strength in mind, body and spirit. And that's why people throw the inspiration label at you. And 
it's an amazing thing to watch. Thank you for your service. We are grateful. And thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks, mate. I'm just amazed that I'm still pulling this shit off. <laughs> that was my conversation with Paul de Gelder. You can find Paul on social media by searching his name and also look up www.pauldegelder.com. Also find him on YouTube to watch footage of the shark attack. He also has a book, No Time for Fear, available now online. You can look us up online too. We're at LOTLpod on Twitter and Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Check us out there for photos of Paul. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can contact us there too. If you like the episode, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It only takes a moment and it really helps other people discover the show. And subscribe in your podcast app of choice to get all veteran conversations on Tuesdays and bonus episodes on Fridays. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...